Well, please take out your Bibles today and join me in the book of Galatians. Today we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3, looking at verses 15 through 22. And I want to speak to you today on the topic of the importance and impotence of the law. The importance and impotence of the law. And I look forward to explaining to you a little bit more about what that means in just a moment. But as you're finding your place there in Galatians, I want to invite you, if you're able, to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. We are declaring that God's Word is our sole authority. It's authoritative for our lives in church and for all that we do. And we need to honor it as we read it together. So beginning in verse 15, the Apostle Paul writes, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The Word of God. The law of God, its importance and its impotence. You know, over the years, our government has passed Tons and countless numbers of laws and regulations and standards and all kinds of legislation. And if you do a study of the law in the United States, you will find that all of the laws in our federal government are contained in a large collection of books called the United States Code, the U.S. Code. It's where all of our laws are contained and gathered. And most people refer to this just simply as the federal law. The U.S. Code is a massive collection of books. In fact, it contains 52 titles. And each title contains a different part of the law and how it relates to life in our country. For example, there's the titles. The titles describe things like the office of the president, things such as uh, the military or highways, copyright laws. There's titles about the postal service, taxes, railroads, telecommunications, even how we do elections. All of these and many others are contained in this massive document called the U.S. Code. And under each title, there's a lot of things that are listed in different categories. For example, under each title, it's broken down into subtitles and then chapters, then down into parts, then down into sections, then down into paragraphs, then down into clauses, and then even on into individual items. In total, there are over 25,000 pages of law in this document, 25,000 pages or more in the U.S. Code. And there's so many individual laws that if you do a Google search and you ask how many laws are there, individual laws in the U.S. Code, 
The answer that you see all across the internet is that no one really knows. There are so many laws that we can't even know how many there are. It would take way too much time to try to figure that out. And when you think about the massive amount of laws that's in the U.S. Code, that doesn't even compare to the 75,000 pages of laws that are contained in the U.S. Tax Code or the tax laws. 75,000 pages. And that doesn't even compare to the millions of individual state laws in every state. These state uh, codes that we have to go by that one state differs from another in. So there's millions and millions of laws out there. And this doesn't even include all of the private laws held by corporations, organizations, churches, schools, even the laws that you give to your own family inside your home. There's a lot of laws and rules and regulations out there. And you see, one of the things that we can understand about this massive amount of laws is that even though we have more laws that we, than we can count, and there is an endless number, it seems, of these laws, there are still people being arrested by the masses every single day. Our court systems are just full of cases. There's an endless number of lawsuits and, and of cases where people are suing one another. There's all kinds of people who are fined and uh, are, are given penalties each and every day because they break the law. Even employees and students and children are regularly disciplined because they are breaking the law. And when you think about this, it tells us one thing. While laws are definitely important and needed because they guide us and protect us and restrain evil in our country, laws are also impotent. They're powerless. They're powerless to change hearts and minds. They're powerless to make people do what is right and prevent them from doing what is wrong. Otherwise, we wouldn't keep adding so many new laws over and over and over every single day. The law is powerless to change lives in the sense of making people want to do what is right and not want to do what is wrong. The law is essentially powerless. And this, in essence, is the message of the gospel. You see, the gospel says because of our human nature, our fallen nature as sinners, that we don't have the ability to do what is right according to God. No matter how many laws that God gives us or what he tells us to do, our inner nature does not have the ability or desire to do what is right and to restrain from doing what is wrong. No one is perfect. No one can live out exactly the way that God has called us to live out on our own. And you see, only by being changed through the power of Jesus Christ, can we ever be made righteous in the eyes of God and have the ability to do what God has called us to do according to his will. That change doesn't come through the law, but it only comes through the grace of God as we place faith in Jesus Christ. It's the renewal that comes through the Holy Spirit as he renews and changes our minds and hearts to, do, to want to do what God said to do and to hate what God hates. That is the only way that we can see real change in our culture and society. It comes through the gospel. You see, there's many today who happen to believe, though, that if you add more and more laws, if you keep telling people what to do and what not to do, that somehow they're finally going to get it. And this is what we would call works righteousness. That somehow we can be good enough and earn our way to be right with God. But that is not the gospel. The gospel says it must come from the grace of God through a change in our hearts in order to please him. Well, this is not the message that the Judaizers were preaching in Galatia. In fact, it was the opposite. 
The Judaizers in Galatia were saying the opposite in that if you really want to please God, it's all about how hard you try in your own self to do what he's called you to do. You may remember from last week, we noticed that the promise given to Abraham back in Genesis 12 was essentially salvation that God was giving to those who would be included in him in the world, included in this promise. People of the Jewish faith believed that if you wanted to be in the promise of God, in this worldwide salvation that he promised Abraham, then you simply had to become a Jew. If you were born a Jew, you had to keep all the laws that God gave to Moses. You had to be circumcised, go through all the rituals, all the legal system. You had to do all of these things very well, and if you were found faithful at the end of your life, then God would save you. If you were not born a Jew, if you were a Gentile like these Galatians, then you would need to identify with the Jewish people. You would need to become circumcised even later in life. You would need to start practicing the rituals and all the ceremonies and all of the legal things that the law prescribed. And as you become Jewish and you earn enough credit with God, then finally God would perhaps save you in the end. It was all about how well you could keep the law in their eyes. And then God would give you what you were due according to them. But you see, this is not the message of the gospel that Paul was proclaiming. In fact, Paul would have said the exact opposite of this, and he would have said that what they were saying was completely wrong. You see, the Judaizers said that Abraham was actually a model of works righteousness. That it was because he was circumcised, that he did what God told him to do, that he offered up his son Isaac. All of these things built up into enough spiritual credit to where God would find him acceptable. And that's what happened. And then 400 years later, God gave Moses the law and he sort of changed up things to where there was even more requirements that you had to meet in order to be saved. But you see, this is not the message that Paul proclaimed. If you remember last week in chapter 3, verses 6 through 14, Paul responded by arguing that really it wasn't works that saved Abraham at all, but it was through his faith in what God promised him that he was going to do. Back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says that Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. If you remember what happened there, God had promised Abraham that he was going to cause his descendants to be as numerous as the stars in the heaven as many as the sand on the seashore, as much as the dust on the earth. And he was personally going to do this by sending a Savior who would redeem all of these people that he had chosen. This is the gospel message. And all a person has to do in order to be included in this offspring of salvation is to simply believe and place faith in the one who is coming. To have faith in God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that would be enough for God to dump all the righteousness you needed in your life to be justified into your heart without you having to do anything. And that's what it says happened to Abraham. God made him righteous because of his faith. Notice this happened before he was circumcised. It happened before he did some of the things God told him to do. It happened before Isaac was offered as a sacrifice. It happened 400 years or more before the law even came. And God was establishing at the beginning that salvation would come through faith, not through works. But as Paul was explaining this, it's likely that the Galatians would have questioned, well, what is the purpose of the law? If the law doesn't save us, if the law is not contributing to our salvation, then what is its purpose? Why would God have given it to Moses if it couldn't save us, if we weren't supposed to do what it said in order to be saved? Why would God even give us such a law? You know, it's a great question. If we're saved by faith, then why do we have so many rules in the Bible? 
Why are there all of these laws, hundreds of laws that we see in the Old Testament, even laws after you get past the Old Testament? Why would God give us all of these laws if we were not supposed to be saved by them? Well, it's a great question that we need to look at this text to answer today. Because for many in our country, there are people who insist on a works righteousness salvation. There are people who are legalists, fundamentalists, who look to the law to verify their own faith, to try to say, I've done all of these specific things, now God is going to find me acceptable. That's how they believe. But that is not living by faith according to what Scripture teaches. Accomplishing the law should come as a result of your faith, not as a means to get your faith. And that's what Paul wants them to see. So what does the law mean for us as believers today? How should we approach it and what should we learn about it? Well, I want to show you several truths this morning that Paul shows us about God's law and why it should be important in our lives and in our evangelism and in how we live, but yet how it's at the same time powerless to save us in the end. So what can we understand about God's law? Well, truth number one is that the law never replaced God's promise. The law never replaces God's promise. Now, you could imagine that after Paul had explained that Abraham was saved and made righteous through his faith in God's promise, which is the coming Christ, that the Judaizers would have looked at Abraham's faith and they would have said, well, that's probably true for Abraham, but it's only because he lived around 400 or so years before Moses came. You see, after Moses came, then God really changed up how he saved people. It's no longer really by faith alone, but it's by faith and through a lot of your works that you will be saved. God sort of changed things up after Moses came. So that's why we have to obey the law today in order to please God. But Paul said this simply isn't true. And the main reason is that God would be breaking his eternal promise that he made to Abraham and all of his descendants that he was going to save if he changed up how we were going to be saved. God would be breaking his promise. He would be going back on his word. God would be telling us one thing and then changing to something else. And God never breaks his promises. God always keeps his promises to us in our lives. And this is how Paul explains this. Look in verse 15. Paul says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. You see, in order to explain this point, Paul calls attention to a human example. It's like an illustration to show us the truth in an easier way. It's like the Lord Jesus would use when he gave parables and he told stories in order to show us truths that would be a little easier to understand. And you see, the example that Paul is using, the illustration, is based on a man-made covenant, he says, which in ancient times was often used to describe someone's last will and testament. This is like a person's will today where they would lay out everything they wanted to be given away or done away with after they passed on for all of their family and friends to enjoy. It's a person's will. And he says here that just like in ancient Greek law, once a person's will has been ratified, it's been set in stone, it's been completed, that after they die, no one has the legal authority to add to it, to change it, to set it up where it benefits someone else to redistribute their goods some other direction. No one has the ability to make one change to it after a person dies, once it has been ratified. It'd be like today, you know, you you say, well, my great-grandfather just passed away and he had a beautiful car that I'd like to have. I think I'm going to go visit the attorney's office and see if I can convince him to change the will where I can get that beautiful car. 
That's not going to happen. It's against the law unless the person granted it to be that way. And this is what Paul is saying. If human beings are so diligent to keep their promises, to make sure their will is kept safe and secure, how much more is God going to protect his promise of salvation through faith in Christ? God is not going to change it. In fact, if you look here in verse 16, it says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, being plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. You see, again, these are the promises that God first made to Abraham. Now, if you did an Old Testament study, and you went back to Genesis 12, and Genesis 15, and a couple of other places, you would see where God makes the same promise over and over to Abraham. He even makes it to Isaac and to Jacob, and then on from there. It's a promise that is kept intact all through the Old Testament. What is the promise? It's God's promise to redeem mankind from sin by sending a Savior who would die in their place and give his righteousness to them if they put their trust in him, the Savior. That's the promise. It's not a promise where a man has to do so much work and accomplish so many things and be good enough and hopefully in the end the good will outweigh the bad and you can go into heaven. That's not the promise that God made. It was simply a work that he was going to personally accomplish through the Messiah who would come through Abraham and through his offspring so that the entire world who believes would be blessed. Not just the Jewish people, but people from all nations and cultures around the world who would believe the gospel. And God says, I promise to do this. In fact, the word promise should not often be overlooked at all or taken lightly here. Really, the the word promise doesn't just refer to God's action, but his trustworthiness. You see, the word promise here signifies that God would be the one responsible for doing all of this. And there would be no way that anyone could ever change his mind or change his course of action. Salvation would always come through having faith and trust in what God declares to be true about the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a promise that God made and that he will keep all the way until the end. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the promise of God. Now look what he says here in verse 17 and 18. This is what I mean. In other words, this is what the illustration points to. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law... It no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. You see, because the covenant was, with Abraham was permanent and unchangeable, no amount of time would ever go by that God would simply go back on it. Even 430 years later, when God gave the law and the covenant through that law to Israel, it still didn't void out what God said back in the beginning to Abraham. It's interesting here that he says he gave it to Abraham. The word gave comes from the word meaning grace. And because it's in the present tense, it describes an ongoing grace that God will continue to give all throughout the world's history until the end comes. The promise comes through God's grace. Just like he gave it to Abraham, he will give it to anyone over history who places faith in Christ. And nothing will ever change God's promise. You see, I think there's really two basic applications that we can see from these verses here. One is a very broad application, the other is a specific application. The broad application is simply that God always keeps his promises in our lives. God always keeps his promises. You know, throughout scripture, God has said that he would promise to supply all of our needs. 
God would provide us with the ability to escape temptation. God would keep us faithful in times that the devil is trying to harm us or hurt us. God would always lead us and guide us. He would give us wisdom and peace. He would always answer our prayers when they come in the name of Christ according to God's will. God promises to never leave us nor forsake us. And there's so many other promises that God gives us in the Bible. And one thing for certain is that God, if he's promised us these things as believers, he will surely fulfill them. He doesn't just decide one day to stop, to stop giving you the things he said he would give you. He doesn't just stop being good to us and loving us and caring for us. He promises these things. He will bring it to fulfillment. And that is a very broad application of this. But what's the specific application we see here? Well, it's simply that God ultimately promises us to save us from our sins. Not based on how we perform, but based on the one who came that performed the law perfectly. God promises us that through the perfect life of Christ, through his sacrificial death, that for those who turn to him in faith and repentance, that he promises to save them forever and ever with no end. There's not any works that you have to perform. There's not any goals or dues that you have to meet. There's not any actions that you have to do in order to satisfy God. Jesus did everything in order to save you. And simply being unified with him through faith is all that it takes for God to grant you access to eternal life in heaven. It only comes through faith. That's God's promise. And God promises to secure our hearts on earth until we reach heaven. He's never going to let us go. He's never going to let us die and go in another direction. Once you come to him in faith, he promises to keep you all the way until the end. So don't listen to the devil tell you that you have many more things to do in your life in order to please God and be saved. Or that because of a sin in your past that God is never going to overlook it. Don't let other religions in the world tell you that there's a new way that God is saving people these days. That it's not just through faith, but there's a lot of other things and other means that God is using to save you. Don't listen to your own heart when you start to feel guilty and condemned for past sins. Those things you did way before you even knew Christ. Trust in God's promises. Trust that he's going to save you through your faith. You know, this Friday, Emily and I will be celebrating our fifth wedding anniversary. And it has been a fast five years, but a wonderful five years. I wouldn't trade these past five years for anything. We have just a wonderful marriage in the Lord. God has blessed us with so many things, like a wonderful church family and a, and a daughter and so many other, other great things. And I won't forget, though, I still remember the very day when we got married and how we were standing there with, uh, with our pastor and he was talking to us about the vows and, and the things that we were required to commit to each other there. And then we made our vows and our promises to always love and to care for each other and all of those wonderful things. And we have stuck to those things by the grace of God these past five years. And we plan on always doing it until death do, does us part, which is what Scripture says. But you know, if we as humans can be so diligent to keep our promises with one another, how much more will God be able to keep his promises with us as a perfect and holy God? That is the message of the gospel. The law does not do away with God's promises. We are still saved through faith in Christ alone. So this brings us to an interesting question, though. If the law doesn't change our salvation, then why, do we, why did God give Moses the law in the first place? If we were only to be saved through faith, which is what he told Abraham for all generations ahead of him, then why did God even bother giving the law to Israel, to giving the law to all those who would be in that generation? Why was it important? Well, I want you to notice the second truth here. The law exposed sin until the coming of God's promise. 
The law exposed sin until the coming of God's promise. Look with me in verse 19. Paul knows this is going to be a question. He says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. So he says the law was given to the people of Israel and beyond because of transgressions. Now what's a transgression? Well, a transgression in Scripture literally means stepping over the boundary. And it's used in the Bible to refer to humans acting outside of God's will as he has declared to us to be true in Scripture. It's when God has told us something to do and we do the opposite. We cross over the boundaries into sin and we transgress what God has called us to do. So he says, because of our transgressions and our sins and our rebellious hearts, God gave us this law. And what we can understand from Scripture is that the law basically has two purposes. There's a positive purpose and a negative purpose. The positive purpose of the law is for God to show us his perfect character and standards, to show us exactly the way that he wants us to live as followers of Christ and those who would be in his kingdom. He's giving us the measuring stick to show us exactly who he is so we will know where we need to be. It will guide us and direct us and show us what God expects from our lives. That is the positive reason for the law. But in this context, Paul dwells more on the negative reason for the law. The negative reason is that God gave us the law to show us and reveal to us our utter sinfulness and the inability that we have in order to keep it. It's as if God is showing us all of these things about his will and all of his requirements and all of his standards, and we look at it and we are just overwhelmed with ourselves because we know that we have already done so many things wrong according to what he said. It shows us who we really are as humans, that we are not on God's level, that we are infinitely far from God in the sense that we are sinners and we have violated his will. Alan Cole says the function of the law is to teach us the moral bankruptcy of fallen humanity. One person described the law as being like a magnifying glass when you look at a dirty garment. You find dirt on your clothes and you look at it, but only when you hold the magnifying glass does the dirt really appear more. The magnifying glass doesn't make, make, their, doesn't make more dirt come to the clothing, but it shows you the dirt that's already there. And that's what the law does. The law is like a magnifying glass. As we read it and understand it, it examines our heart and it shows us the mistakes and the errors and all the things that we've done wrong in the eyes of God. Paul says in Romans 5.20, the law came to increase the trespass. In other words, to show us more and more about our lives that are not right. And you know, if you read scripture today, even as a believer, it doesn't take long for you to understand that you are not right where God wants you to be. You read the scripture, I've heard it said that scripture actually reads you. It looks back at your life and shows you that you do not meet the standards that God has laid out according to his will. You know, Mark Twain once famously said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me, it's the part that I do understand. And you see, when you understand what scripture says and you see where God wants you to be and you're not there, it shows you that something is missing in your life. And this is why he says here in verse 19 that the law was added until the offspring should come to who the promise had been made and it was put in place through the angels by an intermediary so that an intermediary implies more than one but God is one. Now what he's saying here is that the law was doing a job waiting for the coming of Christ, the one who would ultimately free people from the law and forgive them of their sins. The law had a task. 
And it would be fulfilled when the Lord Jesus Christ would come, who would live out the law perfectly and make salvation possible. But until then, the law was to show us that something was wrong in our hearts. Something was not right with God. You know, last week, um, some of you may have heard me ask for prayer for my father, who was in an automobile accident because he, he blanked out. He blacked out as he was driving. He passed out in the car, ran into the corner of a building, and he, didn't, he wasn't hurt, but the building was severely hurt, and his car was totaled. And it was just by the mercy of God that he wasn't in a busy intersection or something like that. Said he woke up and he had debris and bricks and glass on his car. He looked around confused, had no idea what had happened. The last thing he remembers was coming through an intersection about a block back. So he goes to the doctor and he tries to figure out what happened to him. And they start doing all of these tests on his heart. And it was determined that his medication had lowered his heart rate to the point that he blacked out. And that his heart rate was not able to maintain at the rate he needed it to be in order to function right. So the doctor did a lot of tests on his heart to see what he was doing. And if you've been to a test before in a, in a hospital, you know that the, the doctor, he does a test. He examines your heart and he examines whatever's wrong. And then he shows you a picture of what a healthy person is supposed to look like. He shows you where a healthy person is supposed to be, what levels and how your heart is supposed to look. And then he shows you what your heart looks like, how far it's off and, and how much damage has been done and what needs to be corrected. And then he usually gives you options on how to fix your heart in order for it to be made right. And you see, that's exactly what the law does. The law is God's standard. It shows us how far we're off. It shows us how we've missed the mark. And then it shows us that we are not right with God, so we need to have some sort of spiritual surgery to take place in our lives to make our hearts the way God wanted them to be. That is the purpose of the law. It's given to us to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can turn to him and be saved. And this brings us to the final and third truth I want you to see. The law points believers to God's promise. The law points believers to God's promise. Look what he says here in verses 21 through 22. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Paul is encountering another question. These people are saying, we've heard what you say about faith. We know what you're saying about the law. And it appears that the law and, and, and faith or God's promise are kind of butting heads. That maybe that they're, they're, they're contrary to one another or they're against each other or opposed to one another. Maybe we don't need any of the law. And Paul says, certainly not. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm telling you that God's promise and God's law work with each other to produce salvation. They work together. Now, how does it work? Well, verse 21, he simply tells us here that for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Now, the grammatical structure of this sentence here indicates that the statement is contrary to fact. Paul is not giving us something that is possible, but it's really showing us something that is impossible. And when he says here that the law, if it had the ability to give life, this is a word that's used all through the Bible when talking about salvation, about making someone alive in Christ, resurrecting someone from the dead, being born again in the Holy Spirit. It's a word that talks about salvation, making someone alive. 
which is what is required to be saved. But he says the law can't make you alive. It doesn't have any power to do this in your life. It only shows you why you're dead. So what happens? Why the law? Well, in verse 22, but the scripture, which is the law, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It's a very interesting way that Paul describes the scriptures here, the law. He says the law imprisoned us in sin. Now, what does this mean? Well, the word imprison literally means to lock up securely with no way of escape. If you would read through Luke chapter 5 when Jesus and the disciples were catching large amounts of fish, it was used to describe the fish that were caught in the nets that could not get away from the fishermen that would be taken in and harvested. So it's an impossibility for a person who is securely imprisoned here to ever get out on their own. And what he's telling us here is very simple. The law or the scripture serves to show us that there is no human means of escape from God's judgment. We are imprisoned by the news that we have heard through the law. There's nothing we can do to escape the eternity in hell. There's nothing we can do to escape the wrath of God or the judgment that is coming. There is no works that we can do enough to get out of this. There's not enough effort we can do. It's like a person who's locked up in chains or in a straitjacket. They can try as hard as they want to and never be able to free themselves. That's what the law shows us. It's like Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. If, if sin is your lifestyle, it shows that you are enslaved to this. You can't get out. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, it says that we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Satan has wrapped himself around those who are lost to the point that they can't free themselves from the grips of sin. Paul says it very plainly in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. The death that comes through our sins is what all of us are guaranteed to receive at the end of our lives if nothing changes. So why then the law? Why does God want us to be wrapped up and confined in all of this? He says it like this, so that means because of the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. See, the words so that here show that the result of Scripture's imprisonment is so that we will turn to Christ and be saved. Once we've been convicted through the Holy Spirit, once we've determined that we are not good enough to make it, the only place that we can look to for salvation is Christ. The law causes us to give up on ourselves, to realize who we really are, that as law sinners, we can't escape on our own. And it forces us to turn to our Savior in order to be saved. You know, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 7. It's a good illustration of this. Romans chapter 7, verse 24 and 25. Paul is talking about his sin and how he hates himself for all the sin he's committed and this struggle that he has and all this problem he has with sin. He says, wretched man that I am, the chief of sinners, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, as Paul read the law and he understood what God demanded, he says, I am just a pile of rubbish. I am a sinner. There's nothing good about me. I am the chief of sinners. I'm a wretched man. There's no way I can get out of this on my own. That's why I'm turning to the Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring me out of this sinful bondage. You know, as I think about 
the great stories of Scripture and all of the illustrations that we see from God's Word, I'm drawn back to Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. Jesus met the rich young ruler one day, and the, the man asked him, what must I do to be saved? That's the trigger question that always brings upon these conversations is, what is it that's required of me? What do I need to physically do to be saved? Well, Jesus said, have you kept the law? He says, well, I've, yeah, I've kept the laws. I've done this and that. I've, I, think I've, I think I'm good enough to get to heaven. But Jesus wants to really get to the heart of the issue. He says, but would you be willing to give up all that you have, give to the poor, and come and follow me? Now, Jesus is not giving him a law to obey in order to be saved. He's not saying if you will just check this one last box on your list, then I'm going to give you eternal life. What Jesus was doing, he was using the law he just gave this man as a means to reveal to him that he was spiritually bankrupt and in need of a Savior. Because when the man realized what this would mean, that he would have to give up his idol, which was money, and he would have to turn and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, giving up control over his own life. He said, Jesus, I can't do that. I can try to obey the things Moses said, but if it requires me completely giving myself to you, turning away from things that mean most dear to me that are in the way between us and God, I can't do that. And the man was saddened. It says that he wept, he cried, he walked away very sad because he wanted salvation. He knew he was in the wrong, but he couldn't put his faith in Christ and follow him. And then it's really amazing what happens after that. This is probably the most important part of the story. In Luke 18, it says, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? He says, For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You know how frightening these words would be? If this man, who was likely a Pharisee that really did live a pretty good life, if, if he wasn't good enough to make it, how could anybody make it? Jesus said that it's easier for, the, for a camel to go through the small eye of a needle than for a person who puts their wealth before God to enter in. The disciples would have been horrified. They would have said, well, God, if, God, if he demands perfection in this way, then it's impossible for any of us to be saved. We could never keep the law this strict. We're just going to be doomed forever. The law pointed to them their sinfulness and the impossibility. It was in this straitjacket that Paul is describing that the disciples were in. Who can be saved, Peter asked. Notice what Jesus says. What is impossible with man is what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and have followed you. The basic truth in all of this is that while the law shows us how we can never be made right with God in our own efforts, because it's impossible, it's impossible to be perfect to meet God's standards, Jesus said what is possible is salvation through faith in Christ. Jesus accomplished the law perfectly, never making one mistake. And for all those mistakes that you made, Jesus went to the cross to put them to death. So that when you are unified with him, God no longer sees your sin because he's given those to Jesus. And God sees the perfect Jesus standing in your place. He judges you based upon what Jesus did for you. And that is the only way that you can be credited with keeping the law perfectly and thus entering into heaven. And it's all based upon the promise of God. And what we can take from this, not only that, but 
even as believers, as we continue to live each day for Christ, and I hope that's your aim, I hope that's your desire, because all born-again people should have this eagerness to live for Christ, but you still can't do it on your own, even after you're saved. You must continue turning to the gospel, turning to the work of Christ, knowing that His Spirit is what empowers you to live this way, and continue giving your life over and over to Him each and every day. And then in the end, you will be made perfect with God in heaven, all because of the promise that He told us from the very beginning.